Welcome to Amplified. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. Now, here's your host, Ken Rashawn. Welcome, welcome to Voice America Influencer Channel with Amplified. I'm Ken Rashan, and we have an exciting segment because how often do you get to talk to a trillionaire, the next guy to take out Jeff Bezos? He is actually going to show you. <laughs> so I love this guy, Dolph, and he is going to be on our program today, and he's going to share secrets of how to create abundance in your life and also how to live a life you love. So Andrea, how are you doing? I'm absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's been a fun weekend. We had a lot of really great things happen for the Keep Smiling movement. Do you want to recap them with me? Oh, we can do that. I mean, it's a lot of pressure on my side, but okay. So we went out to LA and we went to two amazing women conferences. And it was interesting because I was saying, okay, I understand the women conferences you're talking about. And it was not the same one. So we had two different women conferences. And I'll let you actually do the name dropping of how cool. But um include Sparky in that uh, particular name drop of all the amazing people we did meet. And Well, and the Lauren first Powers one we went to, yeah, the first one we went to was Lynx at Summerlee, and that was in Escondido or no, Lake Elsinore or else. Uh, how do you say that? El whatever. They you made know it what impossible mean. for yeah. anyone to remember they made the name. It awkward for me how to say it. <laughs> but it didn't stop people that were great coming to the event. That's the cool part. It didn't. Carl Wilson was there. Um, Robbie uh, Motter, uh, she was uh, one of the main people there doing such beautiful, amazing things. Um, your friend, uh, uh, I don't remember her first name, Coveney. Angela. Ange Angela Coveney. Uh, yeah. She was a great resource for us there as well. Uh, just well, she's a, a publisher. Great event, beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a, really a legacy event. A lot of women there were um, not just creating inspiration, but they were actually documented with actually doing a book. Uh, Ellie Mitchell, who you had met before, I got to meet her for the first time. What an amazing person with an amazing book, Paper Doll. Yeah, Luann. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's absolutely wonderful. I met her at uh, Secret Knock for Women. And then uh, that evening we went and met with Tracy Powers, who is uh, going to be doing some fun books with us uh, for Keep Smiling and for her personal life. Um, we met her through AJ Poyden years ago. And then the next day we were in Escondido to this other woman's event. And uh, that was, um, I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but WES was the acronym for it. And that was with uh, Sharon Doyle. It was her event. It was absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, fresh flowers on every table. The most high caliber, amazing people. Uh, we, we, uh, you photographed everybody there for the Keep Smiling and they were all high caliber. Such amazing goodness that they are all giving. Lauren Powers um, was both days. Yeah, she did both days. Boy, she looked fantastic as well. And, uh, and Elise, how about Miss Love? Grandma Sparky. Yeah. Debbie, Debbie Love was there. Yep. For, but both and, days. Uh, both days, yeah. I, I want to comment on that. It's it's so unusual to see someone go to an event that is, I don't know, an hour or more away, and next day they're at another event. It shows that they're really thematically and committed to showing up. And actually, that was the uh, that was the message. It was uh, That was the name of the book uh, for the first day. It was showing up. And it was interesting to say to Angela, you know, your book is called Showing Up, and here I am coming from Baltimore, D.C., showing up and here we are going to make a key smiling book and um, edify, create legacy, inspire all these amazing people from the ripple effect that we're going to create. 
Mm-hmm. And then we left that event, went and did a wedding at one of your best buddies. Uh, uh, just adore him. Uh, Kyle, Kyle McGregor. McGregor. Kyle, McGregor. No, yeah, you have to say mm-hmm. McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> he was and in Lana. a gorgeous kilt. Yes. Yeah, and yes. his uh, beautiful wife. She's adorable. And uh, it was the most interesting wedding we've ever been to. Well, since we've only been to one wedding, I would say that is uh, probably a safe comment. Like if you take all the weddings in the world and there's like a, maybe a million or so. Maybe, actually, you uh, and I have been at like five weddings. So we've actually been at a lot of weddings. Okay. However, this was a wedding when you get there, we had to be there at three and then it started whenever it started. So it was so refreshing because it was laid back. You just had fun. You had drinks. You visited with people, got to know them. And then when yeah, they felt like it, we had the wedding. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And uh, what a what a, a neat amount of people that touched his life that are all in leadership, personal development, abundance. Uh, just you could tell these are all people that are living a lifestyle they love. That's that's the part that was very clear. Uh, the one couple, Kim and Michael, uh, they live in Mexico and they have a. Uh, an organization that they help young girls who are orphaned to feel like princesses and to have a different life. So we're looking forward to doing something with them. Uh, So yeah, just an amazing group of people. It was, it was quite a beautiful opportunity to be there and uh, what a gorgeous setting out in the middle of nowhere in Temecula overlooking these vineyards. It was quite beautiful. And then the next morning we did a photo shoot with um, uh, a friend, uh, Hugh Brockington and Brian Thompson. So Hugh Brockington is uh, kind of like in a boy band. They travel all over the world. They're brought into private events to sing. Uh, Just amazing, talented young man. And then Brian Thompson, who's been on the air with us, he's a saxophonist. He just played on the Oscars behind her. Yeah, (laughs) we had to go get his picture. It's the only story that Ken's ever published. What we didn't have his picture. We actually took his picture in St. Louis, but for some reason that picture got lost and it never showed up uh, so that we could put it. So we had to fly to LA to get his picture. So there you go. So it was a beautiful weekend. They got a lot accomplished and um, Brian has committed to writing a special song for the keep smiling movement. So we're very excited and honored about that. Do you want me to go ahead and cover the sponsors? And then one second, Hugh has agreed by text this morning that he's sending in his hope is dope chapter Wednesday. So this is kind of cool. Nice. And of course, uh, Chris Crone mm. last week and Dolph this week are going to be in Dose of Hope. And why this is so important is if you don't have access to these people, they're sharing their story. They're sharing how they created who they are. They created their purpose and they created how they impact the world. So all those lovely bits of information on how you can duplicate that, how you can um, have it inspire you to be whatever you want to be in the world. So that's really cool. Absolutely. So let's, let's go to sponsorship, I think. Awesome. So our featured sponsors are opus.finance. That's O-P-E-S dot finance, a crypto technology changing the world for the people by the people and bees dot social. That's B-E-E-S dot social. And that is a crypto technology educational platform teaching people how to be literate in the world of cryptocurrency. We also have the umbrella syndicate, the red carpet connection, perfect publishing, Big Events USA, MyMakeupLady.com, Lynn Benavides, and TheEMFFix.com. And that's for the necklace that I think you have on under your T-shirt. It's to help uh, change and remove any uh, 
bad rays that are around you. And then we also have Voice America Influencers Channel. And don't forget thekeepsmilingmovement.com. Thank you, Ken, for showing that. Um, thekeepsmilingmovement.com is our charity of choice. Ken is the co-founder. I am the executive director. I'm Andrea Adams-Miller, also executive producer for this show, uh, Amplified with Ken Rashawn. So there we go. We've got our sponsors covered. You did a great job. So I think it's time to bring on our guest. I know well, it's a Let me a bring big him step. on. I, well, you know what? I just adore this guy. He is so much fun. We have just adored him. So Dolph DeRoos. Dolph DeRoos, he's from New Zealand. Was um, uh, You can turn on your camera whenever you want there. There you go. He, um, he not only was born in New Zealand, but he was in six different um, schools while he was growing up. And it must have taught him a lot because he eventually started taught in 27 countries himself. He's known because of his amazing uh, information in real estate and how he can make things happen. However, he has another business called Border Free Businesses. They can do in a week what people can't accomplish in a year. And he was a New York Times bestseller um, six months or seven months on the New York Times bestseller, and it was converted into six languages. And this man has so much information. Uh, we just want to go really deep dive. You will love him. You will laugh. You will be amazed and you will like want to read all 23 books in all six languages. <laughs> so, Dolph, I, th I think you're probably very intimidated with that buildup. So I apologize for that. I know you've been a little nervous with the connection in Antarctica. And uh... yes, I'm totally nervous and don't know what to say. You know, hearing you talk about these women's groups that you attended on the weekend, I've been involved with a couple myself. One had the very illustrious name of Wildly Wealthy Women, and it was an Australian-based organization. And they used to put on these weekends called the Wildly Wealthy Women's Wicked Weekends. And I think a lot of people probably joined just because of the name. It was really cool. And I was honored by being the only speaker that could ever be at their events that wasn't a female. And I remember once we did a live event. This is before the pandemic, actually, but we had some kind of fiber optic pipe going from Phoenix down to Melbourne, Australia. And they had 1,200 people in the room, and they announced me as their mystery guest and apologized that it was not quite the correct gender and all that. And I said my first few words, and I heard all this laughter in the background. They said, we recognize the voice. It's all <laughs> So oh, that was that one. And then I attended one in LA where you guys seem to have been on the weekend. And that was the win, I think, the Women's Information Network. No, it was in Las Vegas because I'd been walking down the strip earlier that day. And you know how you sometimes see characters dressed up as Spider-Man or whatever? Well, here there was Wonder Woman. And it was a pretty good lookalike of, of Wonder Woman. And I, I didn't react to that or think much about it. But I went to the event and I swear at this event, they had Linda Carter, the actual original Wonder Woman who started wow. the shows. And she was cool. also a speaker. So on the same day, I, I got to speak with the real Wonder Woman and I, I met the lookalike out on the strip, you know, who, who dresses up and they do it, I think, to take photos and all that sort of thing. So it was kind of a cool memory. That is cool. Mm. So Dolph, I've never actually um, emotionally lost it and cried before a show but when you called in before the show started and you said yes i'm calling in from antarctica that was probably one of the cruelest things i i've heard from a person that promised me we we're going to the seventh continent together so i just want well, to say that was an obsession with going to the southernmost point on on this planet of course but you've got to understand when you grow up in new zealand we never have this notion that we're tucked away at the bottom of the world in fact we buy maps in new zealand when new zealand's at the top australia's a bit 
lower and Europe is way down the bottom because there's nothing in the laws of the universe that says the North Pole is actually up top. We are floating around in this galaxy and who says where up is? So we always grew up thinking New Zealand was at the top of the world and Antarctica was, of course, at the very top. Well, so you're not actually in uh, Antarctica right now, is that correct? No, I'm, I'm where I'm normally based, which is Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, because I mean... To have that conversation last week where you invited me to um, be eaten by cannibals in Papua New Guinea and then to move to this, I was, I was a little distraught, honestly. Yes, it's, it's probably the, the rate of change that's concerning to you too. But yeah, we move fast here, so you'll get used to it. <laughs> so let's give a shout out to a person that made a difference in all of our lives, Tim May. Tim May, Tim May because he created an event called Hero. And the hero event attracted people like you, Chris Crone, uh, all these legacy people. And <clears throat> I do this, Dolph, because if you don't have someone with a vision on how they bring great leaders together, you don't have the wildly wicked, wealthy women of the West Andes get together and have a conference. So, um, yeah. and, Sh and Sharon Doyle was that same type of person this past weekend. She brought all these amazing women together. And I just look at her and I say, wow. If it wasn't for that vision, how do we actually create these momentum changes where leaders come together, have these great thoughts, and then connect later? So I just want to give a, a very appreciative and gratitude to Tim for creating that event. And it was, so, um, <clears throat> it was so beautiful to have a conversation with a fellow person that appreciates travel and camera work and, and just humanity. Uh, so I'm so excited to, about the conversation we're going to have. Well, likewise, that's entirely mutual. And uh, I agree, Tim put on a great event. And one of the things that sways me is his infectious happiness. I mean, you've got to admit, whether he's teaching a serious point on stage or having a conversation afterwards, the guy is always smiling. But it's not just that anyone can smile, even if they're in a bad mood, if they fake it enough. But he just exudes this happiness, which I find very rare at his level and intensity anyway. And I think it's all genuine. He absolutely oh. loves every moment of every day. I agree. And no one, no one adopts a giggle like that unless they are genuine. I mean, right. that is <laughs> the best giggle ever. <laughs> the best giggle ever. Yeah. I mean, he's like, I'm only a hundred thousand dollars to mentor you. And then he giggles and giggles and you're like, I love it. And so you <laughs> jump in. <laughs> okay. So the way our show normally goes, Dolph, is we create a bit of a, a TED Talk template, if you will, for this book so that we are getting more information that the audience can know is going to be worth jumping over and reading the lovely story in depth. So we love to start with your childhood, where you were born, and what your parents were like. What, what caused you in the early part of your life to hopefully have that defining moment that created who you are today? Well, gosh, um, you know, people often say, where did you grow up? And I have to answer, there must be a mistake. I'm still in the process. Um, and <laughs> I, may it never end. But I was born in New Zealand. My parents were from Europe. So, um, you know, they, they were sort of fish out of water in, in their own world. They, they had funny accents. Unfortunately, my parents didn't teach me English or else I'd speak with either a Dutch or a French accent. The other day I went to the front of the line or something like that. So um, I was taught English by English-speaking people, which is a blessing. Um, 
But then I ended up, as Andrea alluded to, going to school in six different countries. So we were on the move a lot to the point that people often say, gosh, were your parents in the military? <laughs> I say, no. Well, God, were they in the diplomatic service? And I said, no. Well, what were they? I said, I don't know. I think they were on the run. Um, but we just tried different things. You know, we lived in Australia and over in Europe and various places. And um, it does give you a rich upbringing. Now, a lot of people say that's so sad, you know, so that means you haven't grown up with people that you've known since kindergarten. And I'd say, well, that's accurate. Have you grown up with people you've known since kindergarten? They say, actually, no. <laughs> so I don't see how it's a disadvantage. Whereas on the other hand, I've got friends in all parts of the world. I can go just about anywhere. And I wouldn't say they squabble over who... Um, I end up staying with, but, you know, it's always, well, next time, can you stay with us? It's our turn or something like that. That's pretty cool. And the funny thing is I feel at home in many places. So born in New Zealand, I grew up, you know, for a large part there. I feel very at home. They have a New Zealand passport. But I can also go to the Netherlands, and that feels like home to me too. It's sort of my mother tongue. I have a Dutch passport. And when I'm there, New Zealand seems like a foreign country. I know that almost sounds schizophrenic. And in a way, Well, I was going to say, say, say hello in New, New Zealandic. Yeah, good day, mate. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> it's got a tiny little twang and all that sort of thing. And, you know, of course, when you're down there, there's a big difference between a New Zealand accent and an Australian accent. In fact, we're the biggest rivals down there. We're always in competition with sports events. And, but and what's, what's the difference? How can you distinguish? Um, well, there isn't much difference is the truth, but there's this rivalry. It's a bit like here in the U.S., there's sort of this subtle rivalry between Americans and Canadians. Yeah. And, you know, we're always in competition. Mainly in hockey. Yeah, amongst other things. And yet when <laughs> any American meets any Canadian in Europe, you're the best of buddies and it's, we miss the homeland in North America and yeah, big buddies. But back here, they're sort of rivals, you know, and it's, it's that way. It's all done in good jest. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of rivalry How, that goes on. How's the rugby in Australia? Oh, well, that's, it's sad. It's a sad state of affairs for them, really. But, um, yeah. you know, they've got us to look up to, and they, they can get lots of tips every time they watch your games. I mean, that's <laughs> sort of the extent. That's the level of it. And right. they all put out good teams. Rugby is an interesting sport because, you know, it's, it's only about five countries that play it seriously. You know, France and Wales and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand and a, a smattering of others. And South America, uh, South Africa. Well, starting a little bit. Starting, yeah. Not a, a in a big way. You know, compared with soccer, it's, it's, it's barely on a blip on the landscape. Um, but it's a sport that's paid, played very passionately there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I certainly wouldn't want to play it. It, it seems like it's, uh, for someone my size, it would be like one in one chance I'd be out of the game. Well, there's that. And there are many cases of quadriplegia every year from doing the scrums and all that, which is kind of sad. And mm -hmm. I can't deny that when you first see, when you grow up in a place like that, and it's just, you know, body against body in the scrums and, and they're big, meaty, solid guys. And you're right, the, the more mass you have, the, the greater your chances of success on the field. To a certain extent, there's a lot of skill involved too. But when you first see American football where they've got helmets and mouth guards and shoulder pads and coverings over their legs so that it doesn't get burnt by the grass as they slay. You think, what, what a bunch of... Um, sissies. Yes. Can I say so sissies? <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and yet, it's actually a lot more sensible to do it that way. Um, of course. So, yeah. Well, I mean, but rugby, to me, is the only sport that has that, um, that chant or tribal aspect of it that causes the team to come together like family. There's no other... There's no other well, that's very true. So that you know, everything has two sides, and that's such an interesting reflection on life in general, guys. 
that um, on the one hand, you might say, you know, American Rugby Association, and this is real men, but on the other hand, it's much safer the way it's done in America. But there is something about the way rugby is played that it brings out this tribal nature and there's this camaraderie that you can't compare with any other sport. And even the way that, um, you know, our indigenous people, the Maoris, do the haka, which is a, an, an amazing dance, and it technically should only be performed by... <laughs> By those people, you can't be from another country and another grouping and that you, you try and emulate it. Um, and the whole idea was intimidation through, through fear, really, to show that, hey, you're, you're a fearsome warrior. Um, it, is, it is amazing. It's sort of spectacular. And that's the beauty of it. Despite the homogenization of the world, and by that I mean with TV being pervasive, and you can see a program for one country and another country, and everything's becoming normalized, the nuances between different countries not just the nuances where things perhaps aren't as good or you want to be critical, but the things where they're better and you admire. That, to me, Ken, is the ultimate pleasure of travel because you can pick the eyes out of the greatness of any country and any country, any region. It's got nothing to do with their GDP per capita or anything. They've got some aspects that are just awesome. And it's the ability to spot them and where you can to emulate them and bring them back to where you're living at that moment. I think that's one of the greatest thrills of travel. Well, I, I'm going to make a segue to two quotes, and then I'm going to go back to your childhood, what it was like to be in a school that's different, okay? So first okay. thing, quote one is the book I sent you, the Centurion, Centurion World Traveler, and it's St. Augustine. The world is a book, and those that don't travel only see one page. And the second part of this to comment on is the way to end discrimination is for people to travel. So go with it. it. It's the big leveler. And it, it makes you realize that there are things that you do where you're from that are sort of better. But it also makes you realize that there are things that other people do that are better. Um, you know, we can talk about um, insignificant examples or significant examples. We can talk about the way other races are treated. But we can take even some interesting things. So when I first came to America, I realized that there's a road rule. And everyone who's from America who's perhaps listening now, will recognize this and say, yeah, of course that's the way. Where when you come to a red light, if you can turn around the corner, which means in America turning right without having to cross any lanes of travel, even though the red is light, you can make that turn. It's turning on red. Occasionally there'll be a sign, no turn on red. And when I first thought, saw that, I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to cause a lot of accidents. Why would they allow such a rule? And in my 20 odd years of living here, I mean, roughly 20 years, not that the years have been an odd experience, but 20 odd years of being here. And um, I've <laughs> never seen one accident that I think can be attributed to someone crashing into someone because the other person went against a red light. I think it's a brilliant rule. It clears up intersections. It reduces petrol consumption, which for some reason here is called gas consumption, even though the gas is a liquid, but that's another story. So um, I think that's a great thing and other countries should adopt it. But here's another one that is uniquely American, and I'm just highlighting it as you know, why is it that way? So in every country of the world, your brake lights are red. When you turn on the brakes, they, they become red. And anywhere else in the world, when you turn on your indicator or your turn signal, it's orange. So it's flashing orange. But here in America, the turn signal is allowed to be red as well. And in addition to that, it's allowed to double up with the brake. So if the brakes come on, it's red. But if you then start indicating, then one of those red brake lights starts to flash orange. And no big deal, guys. In the scheme of things, this is not consequential. However, if you consider you're driving in traffic, it's heavy traffic, it's raining, there are pedestrians crossing, a truck is blocking half your view of a car and you see a red light come on. In America, you have no idea whether it's braking or turning. 
Whereas anywhere else in the world, if it's red, they're braking. If it's orange, they're turning. And it would seem to me that cars around the world would be cheaper if we had one standard. So that's sort of a countermeasure example of where I wonder why don't they make that the standard rule? It's just a, a subtle difference. Does it matter in the scheme of things? Not much. So even with travel, you notice subtle little things like that. And it always fascinates me. How does that come about? How does this say? You know, and what a blessing that around the world, when you have a red traffic light, we all stop. Imagine if in Germany and Peru and Bolivia and Thailand, red means go and green means stop. No. So at least we've normalized that. That part, yes. But isn't it weird, though, that the U.S. has not adopted um, Celsius or metrics? It's, it's, to oh me, it baffles me. France went metric with the revolution in 1789. Our so-called <laughs> poor neighbors to the south went metric in 1840. The Netherlands, 1820. Even Canada, I think it was 1973. They were late bloomers and all that, but that, that kind of metric. And Don't you love the it? Life of me. I can't understand it. You know, so I, I do a lot in real estate and we have a lot of areas and I, I get square feet. But you ask people how many square feet in an acre and most don't know. It's 43,667 or some odd number. And, you know, how many inches in a mile? Oh, 63,360. And how many feet in a mile? 5280 yards, one seven. It's just, it doesn't make sense. Nope, it doesn't. And, right. and, we, and we got it from the bloody English, our motherland. <laughs> <laughs> and even they have switched largely. I know. That's the point. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so but crazy. It's not just should we switch because you could argue what it gives us our individualism mm. and all that. Life would be easier and every product would be cheaper if we all adopted the metric system. Just exactly. And, and obviously a, a monetary system too. Well, I've got some experience of that because I was born in New Zealand and we had the old British system of money. Let's just explore it for 20 seconds. And to give you an idea of how complex it was and how complex the system we use here for everything else, there were 12 pennies in a shilling and 20 shillings in a pound. So if you went into a shop and there were two items, two pounds, three shillings and sixpence, which is six pennies, and five pounds, nine shillings and tuppence, which is two pennies, you needed a pencil and paper to work it out. We had no calculators back then, of course. And even with the pencil and paper, most people got it wrong. And yet when they floated this idea of having decimal currency, there were letters to the editor of complaints saying, why do we need this yank system, this American system of a hundred cents to the dollar. That's such a crazy system. Pounds, shillings, and pence was good enough for my grandfather. It was good enough for my father. And darned if it's not going to be good enough for me. I mean, they were violently against it. Now, if you go back to either Australia or New Zealand who switch from this archaic crazy system where you have to think in base 12 and base 20 to dollars and cents and say, do you want to switch back that center? You'd have to be a stark raving fool. And I think in a similar vein, when we change to metric, because we will one day, 20 years later, when you go back to and say, do you want to switch back to inches and feet? And they say, no, that would be crazy. Yeah, but I mean, to say farthing and, and all those lovely denominations, that is, I, I, do, miss, I do miss hearing those at least. So uh, before we go to break, uh, well, actually, we should go to break, shouldn't we? Andre? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to go to break. Yeah. Be ready because you're going to go back to your childhood for just a minute or two more, and then we're going to bring it into what's happening now and how you inspire in the world. All right. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You want to give a shout out to our sponsors. 
Absolutely. The Umbrella Syndicate, the Red Carpet Connection, Big Events USA, Perfect Publishing, MyMakeupLady.com, Lynn Benavides, TheEMFFix.com, and Opus.Finance, that's O-P-E-S.Finance, and Bees.Social, B-E-E-S.Social, Crypto Information to Change the World. And, of course, Voice America, which will be taking us to break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The Umbrella Syndicate amplifies good causes, good people, and good messages. They offer a suite of services that help people and businesses gain better exposure. Through working with the Umbrella Syndicate, you gain the ability to reach an audience of 50,000 unique people a week. They have recently reached over 20,000 followers on Facebook. You can view their photography and how they use it as a strong promotional tool on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash The Umbrella Syndicate. Show them your support by liking their page. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is Amplify. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. We also would love to hear from you via email to info at umbrellasyndicate.com. Now, back to Amplify. Well, that first segment went by way too quick, and we are back with Dolph, and this is the second segment. We're going to take a deeper dive into what he's doing now and how you can actually learn from some of the things he's doing to create abundance in your life. So, Dolph, we had a conversation that we didn't finish in the first segment, which was you have been to a lot of schools. How did that prepare you for life, or how was that so different that it caused you to learn something new about life? Well, I think one of the these most significant things, Ken, is that by going to schools in different countries, you realize that there are different cultures. And I think if you grow up in one place, and you know, when I first grew up in this one place, you thought the entire world was like that. And as you go around the world, uh, the world especially if they're wildly disparate places, you suddenly realize that there are different ways of looking things. There are different religions on this planet, different value systems, different morals, different ways of speaking to elders. You know, in the West, we tend to think of our elders as good-for-nothing ancient old has-beens who are really beyond their use-by date and they've expired and let's plop them into a, a home for the mentally degenerate because they can live out their days there. Whereas in some countries like Japan and lots of Asia, in fact, the elderly are revered. In fact, I started doing business in Japan. I learned Japanese as a kid, so that was pretty cool. But I went to Japan in my 20s when I still looked about 12 or 13 I know that doesn't count these days and I don't look a lot younger than I am, but back then I did. So I'd go into these meetings and I'd be sitting across the table from seven elderly gray-haired gentlemen, all of whom were smoking. So culturally, smoking was very much accepted in that culture, which didn't go well with me. I couldn't stand the stench of it. Um, but they couldn't stand the fact that my company had sent the youngest representative, he must have been the youngest, he looked about 12, to negotiate with them when in fact I was the owner of the company. And that didn't count for them. 
because there your seniority is based on how long you've been with the company, not what you might be able to do for them. So Mm -hmm. it it took me a while to realize that the reason why I wasn't completely accepted and why I got no deals over the line was that they perceived that I'd been sent as the most junior representative of the company. So on a subsequent trip, I said to a colleague of mine, he was a retired submarine commander from the British Navy. And I said, how would you like to go to Japan? And he said, well, what would I do there? I said, I need you for negotiations. And he said, but I have no negotiation skills. And I said, no, don't worry about it. If I say to you at the end of this meeting, how do you feel about that? I just want you to nod your head with a bit of a frown. But if I say, what do you think of that? I want you to nod with some degree of vigor. You can even crack a smile if you want. And he said, that's it. I said, that's it. So we went there and now I took the head of my organization, this very senior elderly person along, and he didn't say much as heads of organization shouldn't. I had to do all the talking because I was the junior clerk or maybe the chief assistant to the junior clerk. And then at the end of it, if I decided we wanted to go ahead, I'd say, well, what do you think of that? And he would on cue nod and everyone thought it was a great deal. Um, And it just goes to show that if you're not aware of these cultural differences, you will miss out on so many things. And, you know, we all have blinkers on, none so blind as those who cannot see, right? And one of the thrills I get is when you go to a new place is to figure out what's different about this place and how can I crack it? How can I figure out how society here works? And it's one of those things, you know, Ken and Andre, I'm sure you've both experienced this, that the more you travel, the more you realize that there are secret ways of unlocking how things work and the easier it is to fall into that. It's like the more languages you know, the easier it is to learn yet another language because you start to see commonalities. So my secret weapon, as I have shared with you before, is the smile. So you go into another country, smile, and it has the highest acceleration for me of connecting with humanity, which causes safety, advice, camaraderie, collaboration, etc. So Share with uh, our audience what your secret tactics and strategies are. So without taking away from the fact that that's your secret tactic, I have also come to the conclusion that smiling absolutely helps. But the secret weapon I use is if you help in no matter how menial a task. So, you know, you're about to cross a road and there's an elderly person there with a walking stick. And instead of saying, well, I've, I've got to get to my meeting, if you take the time to just say, may I help you cross the road? And usually they'll say, no, no, I'm fine. Perhaps it's an ego thing. They want to show that they're still independent, but there's a bit of traffic. And they say, actually, that would be really cool. When you help that person across the road, nine times out of 10, they say, that is so kind of you. What can I do for you? Or where are you headed? Or you should meet so-and-so. Or someone else notices that you helped them when they were too busy. And then they reciprocate. So it's a universal rule that's unwritten that as long as you give someone enough things, ultimately they will offer something back. As Zig Ziglar on a lower humanity. Well, yeah, like, like his saying was, you can get whatever you want in this world as long as you help enough other people get what they want. Well, I'll right. share that um, with business meetings, you open the door for the other person, make eye contact and gesture that they are important enough that you want them to go first. And also just when you're going to get a water, you just bring a water to someone else at the table, things like that. It, it speaks volumes of that you care. Exactly. It's little things like that. And then that can be amplified, Ken, even greater. So, you know, I spend a bit of my time in the real estate realm. I've written 23 I've books. I've heard about it. it. Yes. So 
a lot of people, their biggest fear in the world is not the fear of some untimely death, but the biggest fear in the world is the fear of public speaking. It's a fear I share, obviously. And secondly, the biggest fear in the world is the fear of applying for a loan, going to the bank and saying, would you lend me some money? So the way I overcome that, and I train people how to do this, is I tell them, you never, ever go to a bank and ask them for money. In fact, you have to offer people something because you just said if you offer to open the door for them and offer them a water, et cetera, they, they feel comfortable, they want to reciprocate. So who's the mortgagee and who's the mortgagor? We think the bank's the mortgagor because they're giving us the mortgage and we're getting it, so we must be the mortgagee. And in actual fact, it's the other way around. The bank is the mortgagee. That's why a foreclosure sale anywhere else in the world is called a mortgagee sale. It's a bank sale. So we give the bank a mortgage. So in your document, your proposal for finance, you say a mortgage is offered of half a million dollars to be secured against a property located at such and such address. And we're willing to offer this property to you as collateral for the money. So you're offering them a mortgage, which is technically correct. You're offering them collateral. And the end of the day, they're going to say subconsciously, well, what can we offer you? How about we give you some money? And everyone's happy. That's beautiful. It's not the difference between getting a $4 trillion loan or not, but nine times out of 10, this tactic helps, just like smiling helps. Well, yeah, and, and to your point, if I ask someone if I can take their picture for the movement, it's so different than if I say, Dolph, you bring so many smiles to the world. I want to honor you for all the smiles you bring. Let me take a picture and put you in this book. It's such a difference. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, you've got it. And so I think the, you can learn this faster by traveling, which brings us full circle. And that's why it's so important to travel, not just to go to another place, not another city in the state you live in, but how about traveling to a place that you've never been to where you don't speak the language and where you don't know anyone. And that really, to me, is sort of the ultimate pleasure these days. It hmm. really is. We're going to go into, so. Yeah, we're going to go into that in a second, but um, I want to just... I want to hit this point really hard about how you ask the question or how you offer the value. And the point is when you don't bring the value that they're getting, you're actually cheating everyone. It's, it's so true. Yeah, because it's not an omission of something you're forgetting. You're actually forgetting to give the gift that you're doing for them, which is to help them be more abundant. Right. Right. It's so true. And, you know, we can often get into an ego state where we think, well, since everyone's coming to me to ask me for something, it puts me in this powerful position. I'm sure some bank managers feel that way because everyone's coming to them to do to ask them for a mortgage. So, again, I flip the tables and you can tell this isn't scripted because I teach people that when you go to apply for a mortgage, print multiple copies of your document. And then when you get to the bank, say it's Wells Fargo, say, oh, here's your copy. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's for Bank of America. And then pull a new one. It's the same document, but have 10 of these. And now the bank manager's thinking, oh my gosh, he's not begging for this money. He's got 10 proposals for finance and he's going to bank after bank. So Ken, I have literally had banks say to me, Dolph, if we give you a verbal commitment right now to fund this property, would you give us a commitment not to go to the other banks? We've turned the tables. Well, unlike, uh, unlike you that brags that you're unscripted, Mine is totally scripted. And <laughs> the next thing I'm going to say is that it is totally scripted. See, I actually had that in there as well. <laughs> so you and I had, an, for me, an, a very unexpected and uh, spontaneous conversation about the joy of cannibalism. 
and not necessarily us being that cannibal, but traveling to an unsafe part of the world. And it was such a in-depth conversation. And um, it also included a very um, well-established family losing a member of their family because they dared to go to that same place. Rockefellers, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So, so would you give the two minute to three minute synopsis of that 45 minute conversation we had? Oh. Because I, it was, it was so rich and, and obviously the, the part I want to share is that you did it and the timing and the, um, the etiquette. And then of course the person who was snapping away, which is the photo. And then of course the Rockefeller, if you could kind of encapsulate that. Well, you know, that's tough to do in two minutes. I know. No, no, no. Go, go, go as long 17. as you wish. I was 17 at the time. And my dad was working in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is a country at, in, in, you know, colonial days, the Northern half used to be German and the Southern half was British, but it had become one country. It was half of the island. The other half became Irianyaya, which is a province of Indonesia. And which is odd. Indonesia's already got 14,000 islands of which 7,000 roughly are inhabited. And somehow the UN ended up awarding them half of this island, even though culturally and, um, you know, genetically they're completely different, but that's just how it happened. And he was working there and he had a three-week vacation. I spent my summer holiday there. It was when I finished school and before I went to university. So, of course, I was going to hang with my dad and see, see what this country was up to. It was so wild that my mother didn't want to be there. She was back in New Zealand. She had visitors from Europe, so she and my sister were there. So I was with my dad, and we said, what should we do? Well, we'd heard about this mysterious Sepik River, S-E-P-I-K, and we thought, Perhaps naively, let's make our way there. So we hitchhiked through the highlands. And by the way, to get from the capital, which is called Port Moresby, to Lae, L-A-E, where you go up the highlands, there, there's no roads. The country's so rugged. They went, so we had to fly there in an old DC-3. And then we hitchhiked about five, uh, six, 700 miles up into the highlands. And then we went 100 kilometers along this dirt road and eventually arrived at the Sepik River. And the way you go up or down this river is in hollowed out tree trunks, so canoes made by hollowing out tree trunks. And we spent days on this river going downstream, and we'd picked up a few people, an elderly German couple and an Algerian guy and a Swiss guy. And here was the interesting thing. I was the youngest. I was 17 at the time, but I was the only one who could speak Dutch with my father and German with the elderly couple and French with the Swiss and the Algerian. The Swiss guy was French-speaking, which isn't the same for all Swiss people, of course. And um, so I was a communicator. I was by no means the leader of the group, but I was a communicator. So we'd get to these villages and they had initiation ceremonies where the guys who reached the age of 18, which was my next birthday, went from boyhood to manhood. And they did that by cutting open their skin with sharp rocks and then rubbing a dirt in it, which has a high sulfur content. And that raised these permanent welts. And the more of these you had on your chest and your thighs and your back, the more manly you were. And then they had these tom-tom drums that were beating. And by the way, their hair was all shaved off. They had twigs stuck through the earlobes and they had to stand there without blinking while all the women of the village were dancing to the beat of these tom-toms trying to distract them. And um, so we, we were so unprepared for this trip. We didn't have a compass. We had no rope. We had no gangrene medicine, no malaria tablets, nothing. But I did have a camera, a single lens reflex camera. It was long before the day of digital. So it had film and I had 12 rolls of film with me. And, and this Algerian guy kept on snapping photos of what was going on. And the, you know, the chief of this village went to him and said, no photo, you know. And he told me to tell him, because remember, I was the communicator. So I said, oh, listen, it's possible to take a photo, right? 
not allowed to take photos. Well, he kept on snapping them. And then the chief came to him and said, tell them no. I said, no, it's forbidden. And he kept on doing it. And eventually he got carted off. And I'll never forget him screaming instead of saying, Edimor, Edimor, help me. And at that stage, there was nothing I could do. And then I was summoned to the, the house Tambaran, which is the, the, the building of the chief. And I thought, now I'm in trouble. One of my flock has done something wrong. And he could see that I had a camera with me. What I had was pretty obviously a camera. And he looked at me and he said, do you want to take photos? And I was 17 and petrified and thinking the wrong answer here could have severe consequences for me. But instead of pretending it wasn't a camera or something, I said, I, I'd be honored. And he said, well, be my guest. Because all he wanted was acknowledgement that we strangers were in his village. So I got to take this, I think, incredible series of photos of this initiation ceremony that I don't think happens anymore, guys. I think the world that my dad and I experienced in 1977 doesn't exist anymore. Um, mm. uh, you know, there were no roads there. There were no cars. There was no electricity. That means no radios, no TVs. Uh, satellite phones hadn't been invented. GPS hadn't been invented at that stage. It was so primitive. It was, it was interesting to see. So what do you think happened to the gentleman that uh, was taking photos besides being carted off? Was he dinner or? No, um, he, he, we, we all thought that. And we were about to leave the next morning and everyone's pretty somber and quiet because we hadn't heard. And they were about to launch our hollowed out tree trunk from the shore near their village. And they said, oh, wait, wait. And they ran back and they hauled him out and literally threw him in the boat. They said, we mm. don't want him. And he'd been kind of a know-it-all up to then. And from that moment on, he was very subdued and quiet. And he very put a bad taste in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what was your dad like? Oh, he was very much the adventurous kind. Uh, he had no fear, which was both good and bad. The good, ba the good part is we went to places like that. But looking back, it was absolutely silly because we were weeks travel from civilization. And if we hadn't made it out, Oh, and that reminds me, we'll get to the Rockefellers in a bit. If we hadn't made it out, I think to this day, my mother, bless her, she's still alive. She wouldn't have known what happened to her. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. apparently the grandson of Nelson Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, of course, is one of the patriarchs of money society here in America. A guy called David Rockefeller, he went to Papua New Guinea around the same time that my dad and I were there. And then he disappeared and he was never heard from again. And I found out what happened because once I flew from Perth in Australia to Atlanta, Georgia, to attend a board meeting, and that's this a 12 part of the globe. Hour, yeah, that's a 12-hour time zone change. That's a long flight. Um, and so I was jet-lagged, as one often gets when you travel a lot. And um, I was wide awake at 2 or 3 in the morning, so I turned the TV on, which is something I don't normally do. I don't even have TV at home. And there was the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, one of the two. And there was the story about this, the grandson of Nelson Rockefeller and how these two elderly Dutch Jesuit priests came forward and they said, but we were living there at the time. We saw what happened. And apparently he'd been out canoeing in a hollowed out tree trunk and his canoe flipped and got swamped and he swam to shore and he was set upon by cannibals and clubbed to death. And, and, and that, that, that was the end of him. And they came forward 40 some years after this had happened. And that was how the world discovered. And I thought, holy smoke, my dad and I were there around the same time. And we went through, you know, what you could describe as cannibal territory. 
Mm. And obviously we survived, but I thought I've, I've, I've got to get the story out. So I'm, I'm working on that one uh, right now because I just think it's fascinating that what we experience, I don't think exists in the world anymore. I don't know if a smile will save you from being cannibalized, but I mean, I would hope that there's some truth in that. But uh, I thought it was interesting when we talked last week and we had this story that Perth came up and Atlanta came up and I said, it's so crazy. My son just asked me, what's the furthest place you can travel to in the world to be 12 hours away, halfway around the world? And Perth came up as a, a solution, not the best solution. It was about nine 9,000 something miles instead of 11,000 miles. But it was, it was interesting that you and I had just uh, had that conversation the same day. Yeah, it is interesting. It's like, you know, the day I meet a, a Wonder Woman lookalike on the streets of, of Las Vegas is also the exact same day, unbeknownst to me at the time, that I'd meet the original Linda Carter. The, the, it's, it's like, why does that happen? And sometimes we think there must be some mystical reason behind it. And other times I think it's just coincidence. Billions of things happen on this planet. And of course, some are going to make us think, wow, that's, that's amazingly coincidental. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions right now, and we're going to go into <laughs> rapid fire early, and I'm going to tell you why. You are a storyteller, and it will cheat our audience of the depth at which you could speak on almost any topic. So we're going to go quick lightning in and quick lightning out and just see how many questions we can do, okay? Okay, got it. So let's start with the first one. How do, how do people connect with you, and what, what do you provide them so they can have a better life? Real quick. Oh, gosh. So I do all kinds of events. You can see some of them on my website, which is simply my full name.com, DolphDeRoos.com. Um, but just look up Dolph. There aren't that many Dolphs in the world. So look up Dolph Real Estate or Dolph uh, Travel, whatever you're interested in, and it will pop up. You can connect through me on uh, Instagram and, and TikTok and you name it. All right, Andrea. Well, what is the song that really gets you jazzed up and moving? Oh, gosh, there are so many. I've got this really eclectic uh, taste, but um, gosh, a song that I'm, you know, I, I, I like that, um, that Kodachrome by Paul Simon. There's a whole story That's about a great one. I met Paul Simon once. Um, but it, it incorporates my love of photography, which, which we share, Ken, and uh, the fact that, you know, you can take a snapshot of something and the memory that it conjures up can last for decades. Mm. So anyway. I, I, that, that's one song, but I've got many songs. Yeah. yeah I, I bet you do. And so we can always add those in the book or whatever. So um, quickly back and forth again. Um, what's a place you, what's your favorite place you photographed and what's the favorite place you wish you could photograph? Oh gosh. I think my favorite place to photograph is Prague and the Czech Republic. It is Isn't Prague mm, crazy. Yeah. The is weather crazy. change is insane. Yeah. And okay. then, in terms of, uh, I've been there once, but I want to go there longer, and that's St. Petersburg in Russia. It is also stunningly beautiful, and I think there are so many possibilities there, because everything's on a grand scale, so you can play yes. around with dimensions and perspectives. Very good. Andrea? When you were a child, what did you want to grow up to be? Oh, people would say, you know, what's your name? And uh, I'd have this long-winded name and they'd look at me weird. Like it was Peter Pumpkin, Bong Chatterbox, Marching Girls or something. Everything I liked, I incorporated. In my, and they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I apparently, and my parents have teased me about this fear, I'd say a father. And, you know, I've become a father and I would say it's the best job I've ever had. I, mm. I, I love it. Um, 
a lot of people wonder why you weren't called golf instead of Dolph because you're such a brilliant golfer. And I wanted you to speak on that for a second. <laughs> no, the truth is I don't play golf. I always say the reason is people would have to call me and say, hey, would you like to have a game of golf, Dolph? It just doesn't sound right. I have a theory and I have not found any evidence to the contrary that guys with the name Dennis never get to play tennis for the same reason. <laughs> I do um, so when you're a child, what kind of, you know, because you ended up being an electrical engineer, at least going to school for that. Um, what did you tinker with or play with? What, what, what inspired you? Oh, I always wanted to be a detective. So to be a detective, you have to take fingerprints. So you get a crucible, you put chalk in it, and you have to mix it with mercury. And so I would go to the pharmacy, or we'd call it a chemist shop, and I'd buy little vials of mercury. You could in those days. And I would play with it for hours because it's a liquid at room temperature. Imagine how much smarter you would be if you had <laughs> Exactly. And imagine how much energy I'd have because, as you're probably aware, mercury is a thousand times more toxic than arsenic. So That's I ended so up getting chronic mercury poisoning. In terms of nanomoles per liter, I was 5,000 times over the WHO recommended limits. And it got to the point where it reached a threshold and I couldn't finish a sentence. Can you imagine me not being able to finish a sentence that I'd started? And I was diagnosed with this acute mercury poisoning. So I had to go through a long process of collation therapy to collate the mercury out of my body. But that's an, another oh story. It's quite the story. Um, bucket list, what's left? Oh, gosh, there's so much there. So I'm blessed. You I've mean been to so two or three? Two or three. Um, kind of, I want to go to Bhutan. Bhutan and Nepal just Ooh. appeal to me. I think that's, that's a double doozy. Yeah right there. They're right next to each other. Yeah, I know. So it's possible to go to one. <laughs> Bhutan, Bhutan, you cannot go without me because it, it measures the happiness index. It's the only country in the world that measures it. We have to, we have well, to, that's fascinating, but that means that I'm compelled to go to two places with you because as I understand it, if my memory serves me correctly, I cannot go to Antarctica without you. Either. Not, a, not at all. No. Okay. And so, it can yeah. feared that that snow squall behind you is actually Antarctica. <laughs> in your I mind. know. And we agreed, Andre, and not to reveal where I truly am. We've pretended I'm yeah. in Phoenix. So yeah. that's all right. Yeah. It's actually pretty warm in Antarctica. <laughs> 65 degrees Fahrenheit. We chose it was recorded by an American. Otherwise, it would have been expressed in Celsius. But uh, before you answer uh, the bucket list part two, I just want to say it was so fascinating to talk to you last week. And when we talked about Antarctica, I've never heard anyone say, well, which which journey do you want to take to Antarctica? Do you want to take it from New Zealand? Do you want to take it from South America? It was, I'd never heard those choices because for me it was always South America was the, the point where you get closest and you jump in. Well, that's interesting because I lived in Christchurch for many years. It's in New Zealand and mm -hmm. the Americans have an operation there called Operation Deep Freeze. And that's where they have the C-131 Galaxy operating going there. In fact, there's a little post office in Christchurch, which is technically on U.S. soil. So if you mail it there, you don't need to put New Zealand stamps on it. You put U.S. postage stamps on, et cetera, et cetera. So it's this little anomaly in the world. So anyway, that's why I, I All right. Well, we just got notified. This is the last question, unfortunately. So I'm going to do a double doozy, double doozy okay. quick. Yes. What book changed your life and what quote do you live by? Oh, the books. That's so many. I, I am an avid reader of books. Hundreds of books are. have changed my life. Um, I can pick on many of them. There's a book I read about Aristotle Onassis. That changed my thinking. There's a book by William Zeckendorf on New York and the real estate there. That changed my thinking. Um, we, we, we need more time to do that. What was the second question? Uh, what quote do you live oh. by? Oh, what quote do I live by? Oh, gosh, again, there are so many. I love the travel quotes. That's one I, you'll often hear me say, you know, the world is a book and he who does not travel reads only one page. It's as if you read the same page over and over again every night before mm -hmm. falling asleep. Yeah. 
And there's this whole 400 page book of characters and plots and places that you don't even know about. Get out of your comfort zone, go somewhere. You have to go beyond your comfort zone. You can't just travel for the sake of travel. You have to have your body shocked saying, oh my gosh, I'm feeling a little bit out of sorts. I'm not familiar with the language, the surroundings, the protocol, the etiquette, what to do. Well, I'm very thankful to Andrea, my publicist and producer of the show, because I met you at the Hero event in uh, Key West. And it was quite not only a new experience, but it's the experience that I feel is taking me the furthest beyond um, this pandemic. So my friendship and our, our chance to break bread in Thailand via Phoenix um, was just a wonderful experience too. Well, it's entirely mutual. Thank you both for this opportunity, but more importantly, just for the friendship. So yes, likewise. appreciate it very much. So Dolph, you've been amplified for your goodness. I'm gonna let uh, Andrea take us out with the sponsors really briefly. Opus.finance, bees.social, the umbrella syndicate, perfect publishing, big events USA, mymakeuplady.com, Lynn Benavides, the emffix.com, the red carpet connection, Voice America Influencers Channel, and of course, please send your love and donations to www. The, excuse me, the keep smiling movement.com. Keep smiling. <laughs> I'm Ken Rashawn and Amplified, and we are so excited. Dolph, that you shared your story, and more importantly, that there's so much more to do with you. So thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Stay Amplified. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Rashad again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, go get your message heard.